Hello guys and welcome back to another solo podcast. Today we are going to go through again Instagram Q&A with some fantastic questions that I got through. Um, please be warned if I do look down at my piece of paper here, it is purely to write down the time at which I answered the question. So therefore, I can effectively put timestamps into this podcast because a lot of people have been requesting timestamps. I appreciate as well if you ask a specific question and this podcast goes on for an hour, there you want to find your question. You would maybe don't want to listen to everyone's question. So you can now do that with the, uh, the magic pink pen that I have in my hand. So yeah, let's crack into things. First things first, a little bit of an update on myself. Obviously a big week for me last week. Uh, very surreal moment training with Jordan. That was basically like my Christmas, birthday, lifetime present all wrapped into one. If it could have been that, obviously it wasn't a present. Um, but if someone could have bought me something, that would have been pretty damn fucking cool. <laughs> so I don't know whether Jordan realizes how, how much that kind of meant to me, that session. Um, I'm pretty sure he does because I was in awe the, the whole time and also so nervous that I managed to get my age completely wrong. Um, and he managed to also call me a powerlifter, not a bodybuilder. So <laughs> if anyone's watched the full video, you'll understand exactly what I'm talking about. So if you have watched that, I hope you've enjoyed it. Um, and I appreciate anyone that has signed up to the site. We are just about to clear 500 members. So I'm really stoked about this because that for me just shows that the site itself is you know, a fantastic um, portion of what I do. It's an exciting prospect and it's something that I'm just super excited again just to grow, make bigger and get more people on it. Got some cool sessions coming up which I'll definitely be recording. Um, the opportunities that I have with Lucas in my corner as well who's a fantastic um, addition to not only my business but he's also a fantastic friend um he's one of my birmingham friends i don't have many um but he's definitely one of my closest so i love lucas i'm not sure if he'll listen to this but he's a superb guy and I, i'm just blessed to have him in my life i'm blessed to have the people that i have in my life at the moment and i think this is something super key and it's something that i'm talking a lot about with my clients at the moment in terms of creating your your circle and making sure your circle's super strong and and everyone in it that you feel like they should be there for a reason. Um, not having anyone, peop any any person there that you feel is potentially negatively affecting your life or what you do, they should be removed with immediate effect, in my opinion. Um, as brutal as that sounds, but that's the way it is. I think you should just keep the people that matter, keep the people that are adding positively to your life, and, and move on. Um, so that was that. And then um, besides that, I'm taking a deload, uh, four days off, a la. Cliff Wilson, Valentin Tambosi kind of style as some people have attributed to, um, which is true. Um, it's one of sort of Cliff's methods of deloading, which I kind of like. Um, for me, going into to sessions from an aspect of, of trying to deload and back off my volume, back off my intensity, I'd simply rather uh, not go. Uh, I'd rather not be there. I'd rather not be in the gym at that point. Um, I, I don't mind going in for some, some light cardio, which I may do this evening. Currently recording this at about 20 past four. I've got some consultations and check-ins left for the day, um, but may go in later just to do, do some light movement and get moving a little bit, but that's the majority of my expenditure. I just can't cope with going in and, and doing a half-hour session. Um, I mean, today, uh, I, 
Jordan and Corin were in there. And if, if, if I was deloading, that, that session would have soon turned into a non-deload session. So that just shows how my psyche is not suited to going in and doing deload sessions. Um, I had thought about the approach of dropping back my um, volume and just doing top sets, but I think my neurological capacity or my my neurologic my my state neurologically needs a deload. Um, I need to deload from a neurological and physical aspect. So I will be deloading. Um, this is my first day off. I will take days off all the way up until Saturday. Um, this is my word on that front. And then Sunday will be my first session back. Um, I will train pull. I'll be back into my pull push leg cycle, um, which was working really really well. And then I will lead that up all the way, um, pretty much until I go away to Vienna with Danny for uh, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, the day after Valentine's. Um, so we'll go up there. I'll take the Thursday off, most likely, and then train pull, push, and legs all in Vienna. Come back on the Monday and obviously rest up. And hopefully by that point, we'll have got some productive sessions and some more PBs in. Um, with me being back into sync with things with the first three sessions, which I'll take if the if their PB is there for the taking in the, in the second or third session, I'll take them. Um, but in the first session back, I will I will definitely be taking it a little easier, just to ease myself back in. I've done it before where I've just gone in like a bull in a china shop, and it it doesn't work out too well. So that is a brief update on me. So that has ended at five minutes and forty seconds. So we'll get into the first question of the Q&A. If you could train with one bodybuilder from any point in time in their prime, who and why? Really good question this, Matthew. Um, I take most of these questions, by the way, and any that I do need to do more research on, I do the research. Um, but obviously, the, the, the easier ones, I'll, I'll just answer straight off the bat. So yeah, Matthew, I think I would have to answer my answer would be, if I hadn't already trained with Jordan, it would hands down be Jordan. But besides that, I think it would just have to be Ronnie. It would just have to be Ronnie or Dorian. Um, it's either Ronnie or Dorian, but... Ah, uh, so hard, because for me, seeing Dorian's intensity would be absolutely insane. I'd, I'd, love, I'd love to do that. Seeing the force reps with Leroy and things like that, like I'd love that kind of stuff. But on the other hand, I'd want to see Ronnie because I want to see someone squat what Ronnie did or pull what Ronnie did. Um, so, yeah, for me, it would be either one of those two. So, yeah, I hope that answers your question. So, um, moving on. What do you think about eating fruit at night or um, the post-workout meal to add some more carbs? So, I don't have any issues with fruit as a post-workout meal um, or an addition you won't have fruit on its own for a post-workout meal don't have any issues with fruit for an addition to a post-workout meal don't have any issues with fruit at night i mean my question to you stefan would really be why do you think fruit's an issue um what's the issue with fruit um if we look into the antioxidants present in fruit of course some people shun fruit in the post-workout window because from an antioxidant profile we're potentially diminishing the uh, inflammatory response to training, which is obviously something we want. We, want, we don't want to bring down inflammation in that, in that moment of time. Um, we want to actually have the inflammation there to create a response, to create adaptation, to create more muscle growth. 
but I don't, don't think there's enough antioxidants in, in, in fruit to be able to, to worry or in the quantity that you'll be having of fruit to be worried about the effects on inflammation in that window of time. So I don't mind fruit whatsoever. I think that more bodybuilders should be having fruit. Um, I think that we can uh, gain a wide diversity of micronutrients from fruit. Um, and I think that they, they should be in, present in everyone's diet in, in a nice degree of variety and diversity also. Um, some of my favorites are are mainly the frozen variety, even the cold winter months. There's just something about them that, that tastes nice, it makes you feel good, and generally they go well with most meals. So they seem to be the most preferable as well for us because they keep for the longest. I don't have to worry about the freshness, etc. So yeah, that's my go-to. Right, so Joe, your question is, uh, let me just log the time. So Joe, your question is, Pull, push, leg split over a bro split. So why do I pick that? So if we look at the basic uh, reasons as to why we're going to pick pushable legs over a bro is primarily from a frequency standpoint. So if we look at how many times we can train a muscle group over a week and we have a little look into the research in terms of the study that matched volume over the course of a week. So over the course of a microcycle, people performed the same degree of volume um, but they had one group which trained all the volume for one body part in one session versus all the volume for the body parts in two separate sessions. And ultimately, the, the two separate sessions were getting a greater hypertrophic, hypertrophic response. Excuse me for jumping over my words. The hyper, hypertrophy response was better in the, in the two groups, um, or the, the, the groups that split, um, primarily because if you look at performing volume, the more that you do in one session, the likelihood of your junk volume rising is high. So by the end of your bro session, um, Joe, or any of your body part sessions where you're training one body part, at any point do you start to feel like the volume you're performing is not as productive as the start of the session? There's most likely a scenario in some of your workouts where that's the case, and that's where you need to start pulling the plug on a bro split and potentially splitting your volume across the course of the week. Of course, again, if you, as you get stronger, your ability to go into these sessions and progress is, is dropping. Um, so when you are on a, on a split which requires um, maybe more volume, but also you're strong, splitting your volume across the multiple sessions is gonna be key. Um, so definitely, I, I think that, um, uh, any level of trainee should be splitting their volume. Um, funny story, actually, I trained with one of my clients, Martin, and he came up, and um, I'm not actually doing anything with Martin's training at all. It's one of my only clients where I do this for, for a few reasons. He's actually just a close friend also who came to one of my seminars. Now, the thing is with Martin is before he came up, he was doing, like, basically the standard leg session where you do like three or four sets of squat, three or four sets of leg press, three or four sets of leg curls, basically four sets of everything. Sometimes he was even doing five. So I said to him, I was like, I guarantee with execution absolutely nailed, you won't be doing any more than two. Um, maybe three, maximally, because I know he's a strong dude. So we went through the session, we went on to like the V squat second, and the place in which I positioned him and the way that he executed the set he was buried after the second set, done, absolutely KO, like done. The thing is, he could then do the two sets, 
max intensity, max execution, and then go back in like three or four days time when he's recovered from that amount of volume because mainly volume is going to be our precursor for creating soreness, therefore creating a, a, a response in which we need to recover, therefore creating an environment where by the next session we're maybe not ready to train. Our readiness to train is largely dictated by intensity of effort but also volume. So if he was only performing two sets and then later into the week he could perform the other two sets, both with perfect execution, I think he's going to grow much better. So, And uh, in one session I managed to convince Martin that after we've done with this prep phase, which is pretty close to his show, hence why I'm not going to change his training now, um, I'm going to take over his training. <laughs> so it's, uh, I, I think that you know, most most bodybuilders will respond better when they split their volume over the course of the week as opposed to doing it in one single session. But of course, everyone's very individual, Joe, so you might respond better to a bro split and that's absolutely fine. Um, but I highly encourage you to maybe think about splitting your volume across the week. So then we're going to go on to mini cuts. So how aggressive should we use all our tools? What percentage of calories should we cut at? Thank you. Okay, so cooling. I think it's cooling kerns. Um, so my answer to your question is very determined to the individual. Mini cuts as a whole should be aggressive. So we should be trying to diet off body fat as quickly as we possibly can in the mini cut phase because the whole goal with most mini cuts is to an extent to extend the gaining phase. So with that being said, if we were to take it steady or take it slow with a mini cut, we are wasting our fucking time. Seriously. So you need to get in and get out with a mini cut. In terms of percentage of calories reduction, like I don't really work off percentages, but I definitely go into something like a thousand calorie deficit for a mini cut. And uh, it depends, again, the individual. I'm not doing a lot of mini cuts with females at the moment because I tr find that the stress response to a harsh deficit amongst most females is not good and we tend to see some sort of wacky data go on with the scale it's just something that i've observed recently if you're a coach and you listen to this and you're nodding your head please comment in the comment section agreeing with me because i found weird weird correlations with putting females through aggressive fat loss phases and just not getting the response that i want so yeah that's what i would say is that be careful if you are a female and you're going through a mini cut um, maybe perhaps consider a slightly longer fat loss phase to get the job done. I think they can work. You just have to be very careful with how you're going about it, um, especially if you've recently dieted, which unfortunately a lot of females try and do that, and it's, it's not going to work out well. Um, but for males, you pretty much go in gung-ho, get a 1,000 calorie deficit in, get the body weight off at probably a close closer rate of loss of like 2% a week. So for example, if I was looking to, to, to mini-cut now, I'm about 185 pounds, I'd look to, I'd look to almost lose like four pound a week, three or four pound a week, and that that's that's the very upper end. Um, and at that point, of course, some performance might be lost. Our goal would be to retain as much as we can, but some performance may be lost in that phase, and that's something you'll have to admit. Uh, defeat on. Cool. So I hope hopefully that makes sense. Um, and again, when it comes to sort of picking or or having a macronutrient setup. For a mini cut, we're looking at pulling pretty much primarily fats and carbohydrates. Protein stay static, get fats down as low as possible, so around that 0 0.8 grams per kilogram mark, and then carbohydrates, 
you know, just, just cut, just cut them as much as you need to create that caloric deficit. JJF training. So your question is tips on balancing work, life, training and downtime. You seem to be a master at this, sir. Thank you very much for that comment. That means a lot in terms of from the outside looking in, me looking like someone that manages my balance well. Um, that's cool because I don't think that I'd have got that comment like even a year ago. So a year ago, I didn't have a relationship. Um, I was very much at home. Um, at the time, I was pretty much just with my dad. Um, and my balance was non-existent, really. Um, one of my best friends at the time, Jack Piad, had started a contest prep. So we weren't going out much at all. We weren't sort of going to the cinema or bowling or going out for food anymore. So my balance was whack. Um, in terms of how I developed that, honestly, I think getting into a relationship changes things a lot. So not that you should search for one to create balance in your life. Perhaps you should look at spending more time with family, creating options for you guys to maybe, you know, go on holiday with your parents or do something with your brother or sister if you have siblings. Um, I just think that more people need to like admit that nothing's going to happen with balance unless you actually like do something about it. So the reason why I seem to have a bit of balance is because I do shit about it. Like I last Friday when we went out to the cinema, I just sort of said to Danny, do you want to do something tonight? Do you want to go to the cinema? We did. I guess that's a degree of balance, right? You know, coming away from bodybuilding, coming away from work a bit. And even that, that couple of hours spent in the cinema away from work, away from my phone is huge for me because the next morning I came back and I did one of my clients, uh, one of Connor's check-ins. And I did it, and I was like, "That's a, that was a really good check-in. And I sent it across, and his, his response was like, that was one of the best check-ins you've ever done. That was one of the most informative, best check-ins. I really loved that one. And the thing is, like, if I, can, if I don't take my foot off the gas from a training or a work aspect, I see my ability to give out good quality content and good quality feedback for my clients, I see it start to diminish. I really do. So remember that... You can be a work you can be a workhorse. I love being a workhorse. Today, I'm going to be a workhorse. I'm going to get all my stuff done and I don't care how long it takes me. I'm fine being a workhorse. I can do that. But having some degree of balance like next week we're going to Vienna, I will definitely drop off my workload a bit in that period of time. I will enjoy some meals out and enjoy some time away and then these things are super important for your ability to come back and like light the gas pedal again. So yeah, um, I think create your own balance. So like plan stuff, like go out somewhere, go on holiday somewhere, plan it. Don't expect for it to come to you um, and realize that when you're doing it, don't feel bad about doing it because you know that actually it's bringing you a lot of positive stuff. It's not bringing you a negative. The people that don't enjoy doing stuff outside of the gym are the people that always worry about the negatives that come with it, which is maybe getting behind on a bit of work behind on a session of training and they don't realize that the positives that, that can come with that james so you ask about being in a thousand calorie deficit um aim for one pr on main exercise per session or another suggestion so if you're in a deficit you shouldn't change your psyche when it comes to training so just because you're in a deficit that doesn't mean that you can't look to progress. Just because you're in a deficit, it doesn't mean you can't aim to PR. 
Yes, you're in a large deficit. Yes, the likelihood of progression is lower, but you can still aim to go in the gym and have progressive overload occur. Especially if you're the start of a deficit or you're up at higher set point in terms of body fat. Um, this is a really big realization for most because what most do wrong is that they set the idea in their head that when they're in a deficit, they're not gonna progress. When they're in a deficit, their training is gonna go to shit. That's not what's gonna happen. Like, don't focus on that. Focus on the, the potential to actually overload. Focus on trying to string together some really good productive sessions. Don't focus on like what could go wrong. Focus on what could potentially go right here. What I like to do, and this is actually again something I was talking about with a client the other day, is I like to, when I'm in a deficit, I like to pretend I'm not. And when I'm in an off season, I like to I like to pretend like I'm like almost superhuman. Like I, I like to pretend like everyone says all these things like, oh, like naturals are weaker and things like that. So like just block the idea of like being weak and natty out of your head. Like I'm not saying be assisted. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying like why 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 stop yourself at the point that oh okay i'm natural so i'm gonna be weak no 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 no. there's plenty of naturals out there that are that are super strong so look up to those people don't look up to like don't don't think just because like you're in a deficit or just because you're drug free you're gonna be you're gonna be weak i hate i hate that so much i hate that so much um and i see it see it fairly frequently um where, where people think they're limited by where they're at don't limit yourself. Don't limit yourself whatsoever. Um, set incredibly high boundaries and, and expectations for yourself. Um, and I think these these will come and, and thank you um, in the future when, when you're returned with high levels of muscle mass because you set your goals so incredibly high. Louis, so I'm a new follower of yours. Sorry, Louis. I'm going to have to ditch your question because I've already answered it. How aggressive should a mini cut be? Rate of loss. I've pretty much already covered that question. So Louis, hopefully I answered that in the mini cut question at 13 minutes. So far, far ziz, far ziz. I hope I said that correctly, dude. So your question is, how long of a rest should you have between a top off, uh, a top off, between a top set and a back off? My answer for that question is. I think you should have as long as you possibly need between those two sets. Those two sets, your top and your back off, are absolutely everything for that session. They're everything. Like, those two sets should be the sets that you go to bed at night really looking forward to. Those two sets should be the ones that, when you look at your logbook and you think about how you're going to progress them, should scare the living crap out of you. Um, those are the ones where you grab your mate because you know you're going to need a spotter. Um, and then those are the ones where you've got to walk around the gym, pace around the gym a bit, look at the machine, look at the barbell, look at the weights, and think I'm going to fucking dominate them. Like, those are those sets. So how, how do you think you're going to attack both of those with the same degree of intensity and focus if you were to time your rest periods? The answer to that question is you wouldn't. You wouldn't attack them with the same level of focus, the same level of intensity, the same degree of want and need to absolutely dominate that work set. Um, and this is what I, I saw again, and I wasn't surprised at all because I, I knew how hard he trained and I knew what his psyche was like. But again, Jordan, Jordan would just 
prioritise rest the entire session in between sets. He'd either sit down or or wait or take a breather, or take as much time as he needs. And he'd take as many warm-up sets as he needed. Absolutely rinse warm-up sets. Absolutely rinse rest. There is, of course, an upper ceiling to this. You can rest for too long and the movement in your head becomes less ingrained than it was on the top set. That's why you do your, your acclimating sets up to your top set, because without them, you wouldn't be neurologically fired and ready to go. So if you rest for too long between your top and your back off, you're going to have the same issue where you've neurologically switched the fuck off, and you can't afford for that to happen. So you need to be in a position where you maximise your rest period enough to perform well, but you need to take those sets like they are absolutely everything. Um, and you really need to like put that at the top of your mind and that needs to be the primary focus okay um, so next question this one's from Ola and he asks about shit sleep advice and nocturia I'm 18 years old so for those that don't know and again full closure I didn't know what nocturia means until I got this question which is great because it means I learned something so nocturia is actually just basically waking up frequently in the night to urinate. Um, so there can be a number of factors. Obviously, age can have an impact on this, which is probably why Ola mentioned his age. Um, in this moment of time, obviously, age is not the factor at play with, with Ola. It could be an existing condition, which he may well know himself. But, he, but also, I think there's a lot of ways that you can sort of micromanage this yourself without having to do anything much different to um, what you're currently doing with regards to like supplements or medication or anything like that. So interventions can obviously include managing your caffeine intake throughout the day so that you, when you start sort of excreting fluid, you're not either dehydrated um, or just generally having too much caffeine throughout the day. Um, Then we're also looking at like fluid intake pre-bed so in the pre-bed window, are we having like too much liquid with our last meal? Um, is our last meal fairly liquid dense? Um, there's numerous factors at play here that can influence uh, how many times you wake up throughout the night. Um, so I would say limit your fluid intake and try and stop drinking sort of two hours pre-bed. Um, if you can do that, then that will set you up better for a full night of sleep. Um, and then... Prior to that, I think your routine is the most fundamental factor. I've talked about sleep a lot on the podcast, um, but your routine is literally the number one factor. So try and get into a habitual routine of having a you know a, a set time for your bed, uh, for your, sorry, a set time for for when you go to sleep, a set time for when you go to get get to get to wake um, or wake uh, because setting up yourself from a circadian rhythm perspective in a way that promotes rhythm is key. Um, without a rhythm without a routine, you're going to be a little bit lost and a little bit all over the place. So I think rhythm and routine is key. Um, and then just making sure that from a from a bedroom position, you're not spending a large amount of time in your bedroom throughout the day doing tasks that are anything to do with not, not sleeping. Um, so like working in your bedroom, um, eating in your bedroom, or, or doing anything that's, that's ideally just not sleeping. Um, avoid, because... You're going to create a weird connotation with the bedroom itself. Should be for sleeping, um, not for working, um, or anything like that. So yeah, um, 
create the, the relationship with going to bed there and that's it. I find a lot of people work in their bedrooms and I don't think it's a good thing. I used to do it um, and it's not a good thing at all. Uh, I, I think that the best my sleep has been is where I have a designated work environment and a designated sleep environment. Um, so yeah, think about your environment, think about your, your pre-bed water intake, um, think about your routine. There's a load of other stuff that I could go into, but for now, I'll leave you with that. And then if you have any sort of questions you want to specifically DM me about, then, then go for it, dude. So then we have uh, Macy who asks, is it all right to feel quite fatigued in the evenings only two to three weeks into my meso? The logbook is still increasing. So um, the thing is with this, right, is you're not going to feel fresh all the time. And with you being two weeks into your meso, you've surpassed that first initial week of potentially more of an intro week, gathering up your senses, understanding where you're really going to be from a strength perspective after your deload, um, how you're going to respond to some of the new movements that you've put into your new mesocycle. So from a a neurological perspective, you're potentially a little bit fresher. And then coming into the second week, you're going to be pushing a little bit harder and you're also going to be trying to beat your week one numbers um, with these new movements. So both physically and neurologically, you're going to be in a position where you are more fatigued. So week two in a mesocycle, feeling fatigued in the evenings is like pretty standard, to be honest, for, for, for the way that I program. Obviously, some people titrate up volume. So in being fatigued and um, to the point where it's affecting your energy throughout the like the evening day might be an issue for people who are titrate, titrating volume because obviously week four and week five is meant to be overloading in terms of sets, but I don't tend to do that, which is actually one of the other questions which I'll cover later. Um, but if you're not titrating volume, you're keeping volume static, or at least your way of progressing volume is not through sets, but it's more through achieving an extra rep or adding loading, then I think you'd be fine to feel fatigued week two into a mesocycle. And I think that like, if anything, the signs that you're feeling fatigued is actually just a sign that you are probably training quite hard. And in that case, kudos, keep it up. Because, like, ultimately creating an adaptation is not going to be a smooth, easy ride. I think far too many people think that uh, creating an adaptation from a muscular standpoint is going to be super easy. Um, and that you're not going to feel tired or sore or that soreness is a bad thing or that if you feel fatigued or run down, you need a deload and you're overreached. I think far too many people cry, moan, and, and I'm not saying you are, by the way, dude, before I have to say this, but I think people cry, moan, and bitch too much about feeling tired when in reality, like, look, like, you've just started getting going. Deal with your recovery as best as you possibly can. Um, influence recovery in a positive fashion. So manage your sleep, manage your hydration, manage your stre- manage your external stresses. Um, keep the focus and the intent on recovering just as hard as you train. And I think you'll reap further progressions as you move forwards. Um, so yeah, like keep keep just the focus, the the goal to to progress, and 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 make sure you're managing all your external variables. And I think you'll be fine. Um, fatigue is one of the factors that will influence your ability to add on new muscle tissue. Um, you can't create a stressor with no stress. Do you get what I mean? So um, hopefully that answers your question, dude. So the next question is coming from Harry. So Harry is one of my clients. 
Harry is on a quest to learn more. And I love that about Harry. So he always asks plenty of questions in check-ins and even double crosses myself on some stuff. So Harry, if you're listening to this dude, um, I love you for that, matey. Uh, you make me think about what I do. And that's a really good attribute of a client. So thank you. Um, so essentially, you ask about hip thrusting. Why don't I rate heavy hip thrusts anymore? Why don't I do them? So in my opinion, the cost-benefit analysis of a hip thrust is not really in our favor of selecting the exercise. The reason why is because we're creating quite a bit of axial loading to a degree. Obviously, we're not primarily loading the lower back, but we are to a degree loading the erectors. Therefore, we do have some axial loading from the hip thrust. Therefore, if we look at the loading potential for the exercise, we're creating quite a... Uh, quite a tax on the central nervous system, so our ability to therefore complete a lot of other compound-based exercises with the hip thrust in our programming, especially a barbell hip thrust loaded in heavy rep ranges, is diminished. Um, and when I look at the bang for your buck, especially when most how most people perform a hip thrust, if we look at like fully contracting the glutes and getting a really forceful confirmed contraction, um, are we always doing that with a hip thrust? Um, I think people load them too heavy to be able to do that. I think people are throwing weight through thin air as opposed to actually utilizing their, their glute musculature to be able to do it. Um, I always felt a, uh, I felt a hip thrust in my glutes, um, but I found my glutes have grown far more by understanding what true, what true hip extension feels like because a lot of the time when you're doing a hip thrust, you don't get full peak hip extension um, and you don't confirm a glute contraction like I've said so I would say that um, for you in your environment where you've not got a banded hip thrust set up or a booty builder like we have at ultimate which is a basically a cable stack version of a hip thrust um, when you haven't got that replacing it with uh, a glute kickback or even a even for a stability standpoint, a Smith machine hip thrust or just doing RDLs with a dominance of hip extension. Again, potentially looking at hip banding it so that we're prioritizing the glutes at the peak range and learning how to fully contract our glutes. These would be planes of motion that I think would be more favorable for the glutes. But I don't think that I, I don't, I think the answer to the question doesn't doesn't mean that I don't rate a hip thrust. I think a hip thrust can still exist in programming. I just think that the cost for it in terms of setup time and how much we're ta potentially taxing our central nervous system for the benefits of the exercise, when we can get benefits from other exercises that take less setup time and tax the central nervous system less, it makes the exercise weigh it up. Like it's not one that I put in a lot of programs nowadays. Harry also continues to ask, what's my opinions on RDLs to the knee, or well, not to the knee, we'll never go to the, just to the knee with an RDL. Um, I mean, I've looked at some of my footage before and even, like, I'm not happy with the 200 I did, I'm not happy with the depth on that, to be honest. But the thing is, with an RDL, what we've got to look at is our ability to keep our thoracic tight and locked in. Once we lose our ability to keep our thoracic locked in, that's the point at which depth ends. Once we lose our upper back tightness and it's not correlative with loading, 
we then cut range. That's where range stops because that's the point at which we've got ideally maximal stretch on the hamstring without compromising our spine neutrality. Um, once we start to see a, a curve in the, in the thoracic, so in the upper back, we lose stability of the barbell. We usually see a transfer of load to, to the wrong muscle groups. So we're demanding much more of the erectors as opposed to the hamstrings and glutes. We see a weakness at lockout. You know, if you ever have a really rounded thoracic at the phase at which you go above the knee on the deadlift, you're going to have a hard time locking that out. And that's why I struggle. So my thoracic is generally very strong. But the issue with my thoracic is it's always fatigued because I do low bar squats. I do a lot of upper back movements in my pull days. And then I have a push day in between where I'm stabilizing all my dumbbell pressing with my upper back, my scapula. So, and forcing scapular retraction on all my pressing. So I think that you should take an RDL to as deep as you can without compromising a lot of your thoracic from a, a flexion standpoint. So if you're seeing a lot of thoracic flexion, you need to maybe look at your depth or you maybe just need to look at your loading. And to be honest, be honest with you, Harry, I think the loading on that 200 set was too cocky. Um, not happy with the, the amount of range that I got on that, but I will fix that. We'll fix that. You won't be seeing any sort of just to just below the knee RDLs from me. Um, I'm in a guy that likes to take an RDL, uh, not all the way to the floor because I think that compromises the erectors a bit too much, especially when you're looking at maximally overloading an RDL. Yes, it's, it's, it's a really hard exercise to do. So you're certainly doing the hard stuff when you pause to the floor. And it's, and it is a great movement if you can remain neutral and you can keep everything tight, but it's so hard to do. Not many people can do that, buddy. So I think that if we can really load up a perfect barbell RDL with lovely eccentrics, a nice eccentric loading, ideally depth to mid shin height, and that's awesome. That's great. That's where we want to be. Yeah, that makes sense. I think if that makes sense, then perfect. But that's just my opinions, of course. And Harry, you're entitled to, to, to question me on that one again question is on your himbine from jdf fitness so again another question on your himbine this is one i actually haven't covered so i'm happy to cover this one uh, it's just on the, on the timing timing your himbine so i don't think there's anything that we need to sort of be too in depth with with the timing of your himbine uh, personally i recommend to clients 20 minutes before cardio um i think that's an adequate time to be taking it again with caffeine ideally um that's perfect. That's perfect setup. Um, I don't think you need to be stressing about being on the minute or on the hour with your himbine. Um, 20 minutes pre-CV, you should be fine. Um, so, next question. Dan Max, thoughts on adding sets throughout a mesocycle or adding load? Is there a better or more optimal approach? Um, now, I don't think there's a better or more optimal approach to either. I think there's an approach that obviously works for some more than others and some enjoy more than others so this is sort of the open-mindedness that you've got to have when it comes to to bodybuilding training and this is something that maybe perhaps i i don't know maybe perhaps i don't do as well as i could uh if maybe it's a downfall of myself because if you were to ask what i would do for myself it would always be adding loads because I believe that the greatest stimulus we have 
to create an adaptation is mechanical tension. And with that being said, that means that we need to add load over the on the bar or the dumbbells or the cable stack every single time we can. Okay, and when we're adding when we're adding sets, what happens generally with most people that can train hard is that they they hit a wall really really fast. Um, and this usually exists, and this when this happens, you seem to see a significant rise in the amount of junk volume that someone's doing. Okay, so at that point, we are really running into issues with providing an accurate and meaningful stimulus for hypertrophy. Let's just take Jordan, for example, okay? So Jordan's a great example. Imagine Jordan, someone who can train as hard as he can, which is very few humans on this planet. Imagine him adding sets to his protocol. And he's someone that trains super duper hard. So he's top of the tree, right? Imagine him adding sets. He, If he added sets every single week, he would be an absolute broken man by week three. He'd be done. He'd be done in. He'd be up. He would, I doubt he'd, he would leave his bed. He'd be that done in. Um, unless he managed to somehow reduce his output in terms of managing fatigue in every one of his sets so that he's training to a perceived RIR, which I don't think Jordan's going to be doing anytime soon. So if you can train anywhere near close to that intensity, I don't think adding sets is going to be your favorable approach. Um, I think this enjoyment factor for, for, for you as a trainee will drop off quite fast um, and you'll be performing junk volume in no time um, and, and you, your enjoyment of the overall process will diminish um, and, and that's generally just quite an upsetting point at which to be within your training. I think, I think that's something that we should try to avoid as much as possible. Enjoyment of your training is a huge thing. Um, so for me, it's always going to be adding load. It's always going to be adding reps or adding load chasing mechanical tension um, and not chasing volume as a precursor for hypertrophy. Of course, volume is a factor of hypertrophy, but if you get so strong, like work this out, guys. I've added 20 kilos to my squat for pretty much matched reps in a two-month period. I went from 180 for 10 to pretty much 200 for 10. I did the 180 for 10 in November, and that was hard. And I've gone now, like yesterday, I did 200 for nine. That's an amount, that's a large amount of volume added in that period of time. And that's just through what? Adding sets? No, 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 no. If anything, I've reduced sets. I've just gotten stronger. And that's, ultimately, I think that's what's going to yield the best progress for most people. Next question. Top four exercises for back. So if we're looking at building density to your entire posterior chain, I think you absolutely need to do some form of deadlift variation. Whether that's pulling from the floor, whether that's controlling an eccentric on a rack dead and pulling in the rack. Not a huge fan of them, but I think they can do favors for back development if you're limited from the floor. Perhaps you've got a knee injury, a hip injury, um, something that limits you from pulling from the floor height. Rack pulls can be good as long as you control the eccentric. Rack pulls are not bad. They are bad when you perform them with a bounce and with inertia and with no control to the eccentric. They become an exercise that has pretty much a nil effect on hypertrophy. If anything, they're just battering up your, your central nervous system for no degree of hypertrophic stimulus. So for me, I think you need to pull from the floor, pull from the rack, 
do an RDL variation, primary primary goal for back. Um, that may cause some hissy fits among some people who don't think that deadlifts build your back. But I think anecdotally, if you look at the best backs ever, they probably all pulled. Um, yeah. And then you look at something like a secondary pull to that would be a, some of my favorites at the moment would be an EZ bar underhand row or a dual arm dumbbell row or a barbell bent over row or a T-bar row. That would be secondary. Tertiary to that would be some form of vertical pull. Um, my favorites involve a medium grip pronated mag pull down. Um, I really like those. Um, or the semi-supinated grip as well is really nice. Then a seated cable row, um, either with a D-handle single arm pulling into the lats, or a just a standard uh, uh, D or whatever you call it, T-bar attachment. Um, I love those. Again, burying them deep into the lats, I think they're a fantastic move. Again, a lot of big backs have been built on those. And then I, don't, I think a lot of people neglect the upper back a lot of people have a missing upper back in in their physiques and i think that this is a body part that we should all be training um or a portion of the, the back that we should all be training so for that we're going to take a pronated grip and we're going to aim to drive the elbows here if you can see on the video that's where you want to be driving the elbow if we're wanting to train the upper back and if you're not taking a row through that plane of motion a row or a pull through that range of motion i think you're missing out because um, a lot of people are pulling here, a lot of people are pulling into the mid-back, a lot of people are pulling into the lats, but you don't see many people pulling here, and that's where I think some people are lacking density, and obviously we can control density as a factor, like do an RDL heavy, and do a deadlift heavy, and tell me how your upper back feels the next day, you will feel your upper back be dominated by that barbell or dumbbells, but if you don't add in additional pump work, um, as Lucas says, pumper, pumper sets, um, I think you're missing out. So yeah, that would be my top four, which kind of didn't really explain the top four. But there you go, some tips on back training. Coco Fit asks, it's rest day on your program, but you feel great and want to train. Would you train? No, absolutely not. If it's a rest day, I take the rest day. Because even if you feel great, like, don't go and train. Because... <laughs> You've got to almost question as to why you're feeling great on your rest day. Um, you shouldn't always feel battered up after a training day, but you should feel pretty trained. <laughs> you should feel like you shouldn't really want to go and train that day. Of course, psychologically, you might want to train, but I think you should be feeling enough of a stimulus to feel like, yeah, okay, I'm, I'm probably not ready to train today. That's the way that you should feel after training, man. Like, so on a rest day, there is no chance I'm going to the gym. Um, of course, I may do some active rest, like cardiovascular activities, or um, go for a walk or something. But I'm not training with weights, so yeah, I think you should leave it, leave it, dude, leave it. Um, don't go train if you feel good. Like, just take it on the head that you're feeling good. Maybe you've maxed out your recovery capacities and you've done really, you re you've done really well. Like, clap yourself on the back, pat yourself on the back, say well done. Um, be super ready for your next training day. Fuel up, rest up. Get in there again. Hamza asked about online coaching and how to start a business. So, mate, I've got so much content on here. Got a podcast with your own coach, George Osborne, talking all about online coaching setup. 
And I think it's fair to say that George has had a pretty successful start to his coaching business. Kudos to George because he's one of those guys that you tell him something and he listens and he just does it. And I really mean that. I re he's one of those guys that you will tell him to do something and he will do it. Uh, and if he thinks that something's wrong about that or he has a question about it, he'll ask, which is great. So if, if I have something to say on top of that is be like George. Be dogmatic, but also be relentless in following what works. Understanding what works for other people, trying to put that into your own capacity, learn from your mistakes. I know George has already learned from some of his and move forwards. George will build, and I have to, on my word be it, George will be up there very soon with with some of the best and be coaching plenty of people. His books will be full. So he, he, will, he will be a busy coach by the end of this year. Hands down. Hands down. Because he's got that work ethic. Ollie, your opinion on massages, on rest days, for example, sports, cupping or chiropractor? I personally don't get this enough, but I do feel like it does offer benefit. I think that you can definitely move through a greater range of motion when you've had a good massage and potentially areas of tightness, tenderness or inflammation has been released. I think you need to be careful with the degree that your masseuse goes into detail or aggression because my masseuse and Danny's masseuse, um, well actually Danny has a couple, but the one that we've both been to, uh, funny story, we both got a massage off of her the day before we went to New York and we both hadn't seen her before so we didn't know what she was like and holy shit, she like broke us both and we were on the plane like in absolute bits, like pain um, because she literally broke us in half. So you've got to be understanding as to how hard your massage therapist is going to go. If they're going to go hard, be prepared to maybe not train the next day because having a hard massage is like training. It will break you down. So yeah, just be, just be careful with who you pick. But I think they can definitely offer benefit. Have I ever confronted a bad PT who looks like they're going to injure a client? Uh, no, not really. I haven't really had many situations like that because the gyms that I've trained in has been pretty full of good good trainers. So yeah, no, I haven't. But I probably wouldn't either because it's not anything to do with me. It's not on my part or it's not on my back to, to defend that client. That client has made a decision to, to take on board that PT. And if that PT does something wrong, it's on their ass. So, um, and maybe perhaps their, what their, ex their exercise that they, they look like they're doing is actually something that they should be doing. Because, for example, like look up, you look up Eugene Teo on Instagram and then look up some of his activation drills. And yeah, while some of it maybe I don't agree with at all, some of it is actually quite applicable. And if you saw a, a client, a PT, taking a client through some of those drills, which you probably wouldn't because they're fairly advanced, but if you saw a client doing that, you'd probably think, I need to stop that person because he looks like he's going insane. Um, but actually, they might be offering benefits. So don't be quick to judge because sometimes people might be doing something that looks really silly, but actually offers quite a bit of benefit. Um, so we'll see. Final question I'm going to take for today. And I'm really sorry because literally I've got yeah, I've got quite a few left. Um, I'm really, really sorry about that. But... Yeah, I'm just going to have to take one more and leave it. Um, so do you think you need a protein source in an intra-workout shake or is an EAA, electrolyte and dextrin enough? 
So an EAA will, to a degree, based on the amount that you have, it will elicit a, a slight muscle protein synthesis response. But if you want to max out the MPS spike that you get from the protein source, I would say that you need a whole protein. So a hydro whey, um, like a, a casein hydro, Pepto Pro, these are great sources that would digest well with most people and elicit the greatest degree of muscle protein synthesis response, thus preventing the chances of muscle protein breakdown whilst we train. So if you're training for a decent time period and you really want to maximize and, and, and fu fully peak out your, your benefits from a recovery standpoint, I would say that, that adding in a whole protein into your intra-workout shake is, is, is pretty much a must. It's, it's pretty much most on most of my client, client protocols. Um, if they can't afford a Pepto Pro, I usually go for an unflavored whey isolate. Uh, usually, most people can afford that. So yeah, um, there's one more question here that I do want to kind of answer. So sorry, um, I said not one more, but I will do it. So what he asked within the UK DFBA, what show had the best atmosphere that you covered last year? That's a good question. Um, I would say that all the qualifiers are very similar. The last qualifier, the rugby show, was pretty sick. Um, it had a lot of really good people in it. And unfortunately, when you're at that qualifier, it kind of sucks because you're at the top end and people are wanting to qualify. And sometimes you don't get your qualification because you're at the hardest qualifier. Um, but the best atmosphere was probably the rugby one. But, but of course, the finals has pretty much the best atmosphere because you have the best of the best there. Um and that's pretty much all I'm going to take today because I think I'm pretty sure I've gone over an hour. I've done quite a few of these in like different segments because I've had to do it in between check-ins and in between a few consults today. So hopefully this one's been good, guys. Hopefully you've enjoyed it. If you did like it, please share it on your story. Please share that you listened. Um, let a friend know that they should listen to it too. Um, I thoroughly appreciate the support on these guys. The day after these go up, I do get a story full of reshares of people listening in. So I, I love you guys a lot. I really appreciate you listening. Any advice or thoughts on future episodes, please let me know. Um, and I'll chat to you guys very soon. Keep the questions coming. Um, and I'll be sure to answer some more in the future. All right, guys, have a fantastic week. I'll chat to you next week. And I'll let you know how my seminar goes this weekend with Revive Stronger, the ultimate coaching seminar, which we'll do more of later in the year. Um, but overall, thanks again for another great episode and we will chat soon. Peace out.